In every real estate transaction, something comes up that the buyer or seller may have a question about. But in the heat of the moment, the question goes unanswered. Each episode, I talk with real estate experts and real estate vendors to provide a look at what goes on behind the scenes in the real estate world to get you answers. I blend in local Santa Cruz history, add some tips and tricks, all designed to help you be successful in your next real estate project. Tell your friends you can't talk right now because you are with the Realtor Lady. Real estate is scary. Multiple offers, home inspections, mortgages, or even haunted houses. This is all terrifying. But today we're going to touch on a scarier time in Santa Cruz when Santa Cruz was the murder capital of the world. This is an important time in history for Santa Cruz. We are going to explore why with my guest, Emerson Murray, the author of Murder Capital of the World. Full disclaimer, there will be talk of murder. Some details may be deemed inappropriate for younger audiences. My recommendation is to skip this episode if you find this content to be distasteful. And we will see you next time. That's quite an introduction, isn't it? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me, Michelle. Um, yeah, as you said, my name's Emerson, uh, Emerson Murray, and I live in Scotts Valley. I've lived in uh, Santa Cruz County my entire life. Okay. Uh, my, my parents are from this area as well. Um, this is my second book that I've written. The first was a biography of a professional wrestler named Bruiser Brody. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, and it's quite a span there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that one ha- that one was uh, pretty gritty as well. Bruiser Brody was murdered in a in a locker room in Puerto Rico in 1988, and and so we sort of dive into the reasons why and and mostly his life. Though he was an outlaw wrestler, what they call an outlaw wrestler, and um, yeah. Do they know who, that's veering off topic? But do they know who yeah. murdered him? Was, yeah, he, they do. Okay. They just don't know why. Yeah, and. And, and the trial was was sort of a farce. So yeah, was the trial in Mexico or in the U.S.? It was in Puerto Rico. Yeah, I'm sorry, Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Oh well. All right. So I have you starting out with Era. You can start wherever's comfortable for you. But I'm I'm just gonna kind of let you take <laughs> over, and I'll probably add in. Um, all two of my listeners know that I grew up here. <laughs> I uh, came here. I think we came here in '72. 72, 71, 72. I don't know. I'm, mm. My mom and her boyfriend at the time decided that that was the time to move to Santa Cruz. But right. <laughs> <laughs> I did kind of grow up in a, a real strange time in Santa Cruz. There was just a lot of weird stuff going on as if yeah. that stopped. But um, I do remember a lot of it, actually. So, um, so this particular era or time in Santa Cruz is very interesting to me. Yeah, so, so sort of coming out of the fun and wild 60s things got a little dark in, in santa cruz in the early 70s if you'll remember so um you know sort of the the hippie movie movement sort of turned south in some ways you know after the manson killings in in uh, southern california uh, the idea notion of hippies became very dark um and santa cruz at the time was a, a more older conservative retirement place uh, town and and there were always some surfers here and, and things like that. But with the changes in the welfare laws um, and other reasons, other, you know, the university opened in 1965, UCSC up on the hill, uh, a lot of youth moved into Santa Cruz. And so it became a, a little bit of a hotbed here 
with the antagonism. And, and a study was done, and, and it showed that Santa Cruz was unlike any other county where it had a massive population uh, of older folks, and it had a massive population of youth, and not not so much, uh, mi- not so many middle-aged folks. And so, w- with you know the the changes in culture, and you know, um, sort of the I don't want to say free love, but you know, it was just a wilder youth sort of saying, "Hey, here we are," and this older conservative. It, it just made for a very hot sort of environment in general in, in Santa Cruz. So and really then, divisive. So you really just have almost just two two sides, just no middle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, there was no moderation. I, I guess in some ways it's sort of like now, um, but my understanding was much wilder. I mean, you read the newspapers and there, it was just a lot of, um, what do I want to say? Just a lot of pushback against the youth and, and sort of those those ideas. So and at the same time, the, the Zodiac killer was um, in the Bay Area, you know, shortly after the Zodiac. And and so law enforcement in Santa Cruz was really on edge. And I don't know if you remember, but he had said he was going to um, ambush a school bus and, you know, and then shoot the kiddies as they came bouncing off as one of his threats. And so law enforcement was finding themselves having to follow around school buses and, oh and things like that. So it was just a, a hot period of time in general. Wow. Yeah, I, I have to explain to people sometimes why there's so many mobile home parks in town. It's like, well, this actually was kind of a retirement town for a while. We had a very large older population for yeah. quite a while. And it was this natural progression. You would sell your big house and then, you know, you kind of retire into this or you would retire from another area into this. That's why we have so many of these parks but that mm-hmm. people don't really see that. But also I was going to add in when you um, said between the younger and the older this was not a kid-focused town. There was no kid activities. We just kind of went to school and went home. There was no really... I raised my kids partly in Santa Clara, where everything was about kids. Every weekend, you just go to all these things for kids. And even when we moved back, I think that was like 20 years ago, it's still just not a kid-focused town. It's just still really adult-centered. And yeah. I, I still think that's kind of a, a, a bleed from that era. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of true. That's interesting. So if I if I can jump into the book, so Please. so sort of in the middle of all this heat, uh, in October we're almost coming up on the fifty first anniversary. In October of nineteen seventy, a man named John Lindley Frazier, who he sort of thought of himself as this, um, what do I want to say, like. Um, like a eco-terrorists. He had these ideas that he was going to, the, the rich people were killing the earth and he was going to get them to burn down their own house, give up all their worldly possessions and join him on, in this revolution. And he was going to go from house to house to house and do, do this. So uh, his first target, he, he lived in Aptos and, and he could see uh, like a mile or a couple miles from, where he was living, it was a little milk barn on his mother's property. Up at the top of the hill, he could see the Oda family uh, building this big, beautiful house. And the Odas, which I think a lot of people remember, uh, if they don't remember, they've heard, uh, Dr. Oda was a very prominent eye surgeon in Santa Cruz. Uh, he, uh, I, I always heard the word prominent, and so I, I looked it up in the news, like, why was he so prominent? What, what exactly does that mean? Well, he gave away, he did a lot of surgeries for free, simply uh, if people couldn't pay, and he was also a very good eye surgeon, um, and his wife was very involved in local 
clubs and functions and politics. And if you look in the old newspaper, she's in the newspaper more than he is. And they had four four children, and they built this home up on the hill. Um, and they really built it in what they called sort of a Japanese uh, style. And they didn't even cut down a single tree to build that house. There was even like their their deck had a tree coming out of it that they left. Like they really built it around nature. Well, John Lindley Frazier didn't see it that way, and and he was having some uh, mental health issues at that time. Clearly. Uh, he had been in an automobile accident here in, in Scotts Valley, and he started hearing voices in his head. Started, He was camping out on top of water towers. Invisible enemies were after him, that kind of thing. Uh, so he did sort of, he committed sort of a, a Manson family-style uh, ambush attack on the Oda family in their home and, and killed the Oda family. The two daughters were out of town, and they, and they survived. Um, and he was caught very shortly after that. And and sent to, he actually got uh, the death sentence, but for a short time there, the death sentence was de- declared unconstitutional, and so he was um, sentenced. Or it was commuted to life in prison with the possibility of parole, and so he was up for parole every few years, uh, and then he um, killed himself in prison in, in like two thousand nine, two thousand fourteen, wow. I think. Wow. And then hot on the heels of that, and actually while he was sort of going to trial. Um, there were two serial killers in Santa Cruz at the same time, operating at the same time. And one was Herbert Mullen. Herbert Mullen was a, a local kid. He mm-hmm. went to San Lorenzo Valley High School, class of 1965, uh, the, and um, lived. his family lived in Felton. And he lived with them for a while and sort of uh, moved around Santa Cruz. Uh, another one with with very bad mental health conditions. And at that time, uh, for whatever reason, a lot of the mental health in California was being defunded by our governor and by the state. Uh, his family desperately tried to get him into facilities, and, and it, it never took, and he always left. So he started a, uh, what, what you call like a murder spree. You know, a serial killer wasn't a term at that time. So he started a murder spree, and he ultimately killed 13 people and was caught in February 1973. And then also at the same time was a man named Edmund Kemper. Uh, he was uh, he had killed his grandparents when he was 15 years old, and went to a Tascadero mental hospital in the CYA. And 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 at a Tascadero, they they evaluated him and they said, um, okay, when he, at 21 we need to release him, but we found that sort of the instigating factor in in this crime was his mother. So under no conditions should he be released to the custody of his mother well then he moves to the california youth authority cya and they unfortunately said we are remanding you to the custody of your mother so he went and lived with his mother and then shortly after that he um started picking up hitchhikers and killed uh six uh women hitchhikers in santa cruz and then he ultimately did kill his mother and one of her friends and turn himself in to law enforcement and and both Mullen and Kemper are still alive and and mm. in prison was Mullen as the, uh, crafty as Kemper I think Kemper was very was very charming Kemper was yeah smart. yeah yeah by all accounts he was very smart very high IQ but he was like you said yeah he was crafty and he sort of he took took sort of mm, what do I want to say he took murder very seriously and um, 
and was sneaky about it. You know, he had his murder clothes with dark outfit. He had oh. what he called his murder car. And and in the car, he had a, a lever on, to open the door. And when passengers would get in, well, first he'd pick up, you know, pull over for a hitchhiker. And he'd say, oh, where are you going? They'd tell him. And, and he would make a point to look at his watch. Oh, I guess I have time. Just that little things like that to make people at ease. And, and they'd get in, and he'd say, oh, is that door closed? And reach over, and he'd drop a chapstick in the lever so the door wouldn't be able to open, and they'd essentially be trapped. Mm-hmm. And as many people know, Kemper was six foot nine. He was massive, and, and these women didn't stand a chance. So, uh, And Mullen was not so crafty. Mullen um, had mental health issues. He, he says that he believed at the time that, um, that only through human sacrifice could we prevent um, a natural disaster. He was deeply afraid that California was going to have a massive earthquake and slide into the ocean. And the only and the Vietnam War was sort of winding down, so the only way to prevent that was to up the murder rate. And he took it on upon himself. Hey, I'm going to be uh, this what he called a sadist, and I'm going to to save California by killing people. And he would do it out in the open. You know, he was caught. You know, in in Santa Cruz, just shooting out somebody out of the back of his car, broad daylight, middle of the street, literally middle of, middle of the street. Where was that? That was um, oh man, I forgot the address, but it was over off of Mission Street, uh, and with all those houses over there, not quite by the circle, but um, sort of behind. Um, I don't know; those businesses down there change change so often, but. Yeah, it's in the middle of the street. It was a man named John Paris, uh, or the son is named John Paris, sorry. Um, and he was uh, out filling in a pothole by his house, in the street, or right next to the street by, by a um, telephone pole. And, and Mullen drove past him and pulled over. And he had a, one of those old um, station wagons where the back would roll down. He had a bunch of firewood in the back, and he leaned over the firewood out the back and with a rifle and just shot him in the middle of the street and right across the street was a woman named Joan Stagnero I think a lot of people know the Stagnero family yes and and she heard it and looked out her window and there's a guy with a rifle and so she immediately called um 911 and the guy with the rifle zipped off and she um her two sons went out and to be with the victim as he passed away and uh, she called in and described the car, and, and Mullen went up to Mission Street. He turned right. He went into a business parking lot to sort of calm himself or whatever, and then he went down Mission towards Santa Cruz, hit uh, River Road or um, River Street, a River Street, yeah, mm-hmm. and and turned left to go to Felton, and he was pulled over there right in front of sort of Saul's Tannery or the mm-hmm. Rockery place there, and and his murder spree was effectively over at that point. They, I mean, they had him dead to rights. And he was just crazy. So we have Frazier kind of thinks he's saving the world. Mm-hmm. Kemper's just crazy from his mom. And then Mullen's just nuts. That's just kind of. Yeah. The reason I, I bring that up only is because I think that the kind of the free love era and things kind of switching so radically, uh, kind of playing out in Santa Cruz. I mean, the amount of weirdos I encountered walking home from school on Mission Street and on California right. Street and how glowingly or happily they felt it was okay to talk to a little girl. Like yeah. somehow they thought 
that was okay. And I don't know where these these ideologies change of where we have to, you know, be so rigid in our our uh, culture to then we can just do whatever we want. Uh, right. but, but also my huge rant, and you're you're going to be towed behind my truck of this rant, but my rant is where Santa Cruz at some point became kind of a lawless area for some reason. And I really think this is a contributor. I think yeah. this is in the back of a lot of people's minds, even if they don't have that, if they don't know all these exact facts. They just have this, oh yeah, we can go there. I mean, you know, each weekend I follow the Santa Cruz City Police on Twitter and every Sunday and Monday morning, they are showing some arrest of somebody who's come from out of the area to come here to do drugs and crime. Like, let's just go there to do it. Right, right. And I kind of feel like these guys are responsible. That's that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, the law enforcement that I talked to, they said that Santa Cruz was always known as a dumping ground for bodies for crimes committed all over the Bay Area. It's just It was just a known thing. And both of the Kemper and Mullins crime thieves sort of started that way. They were just finding bodies uh, around you know the the campers first victims were actually from you know the berkeley area and uh and mullen he had killed a homeless man side of the road and seemingly out of nowhere obviously so uh these bodies just started hap- appearing well that was in line with with what had always happened and if you read the book um there are were you know i go over some of the other crimes there were other crimes and bodies found around santa cruz and then the other thing is that people today forget is the hitchhiking and hitchhiking culture. I mean, yeah. if you remember every on-ramp to the freeway, there's people there with their thumbs out and back in those days. And, and I can, I can remember that. And, um, and everyone I talked to was like, Oh yeah, we'd pick up hitchhike, not everyone, but we'd pick yeah. up hitchhikers or I hitchhiked myself and people living in the San Lorenzo Valley before the bus system, they were kids and they said, Oh yeah, we used to hitchhike and have, races to get to santa cruz quickest you know in the fewest amount of rides and it's just uh and peter here's another thing the district attorney peter chang at the time his name was peter chang he uh has this great quote and he said that santa cruz is unlike most other cities and that you can be in a downtown bustling area and within three to five minutes be out in the woods completely isolated nobody can hear a sound so that's another reason i i think that that this place was sort of chosen or, you know, it just makes it ripe for those kind of crimes. That that's, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. I was talking to a client yesterday and I told him about recording this today. And he said, well, that's because they were dumping bodies in the mountains. And I was like, what? That's the first time I'd ever heard of that. Yeah. That is insane. I actually also showed the Ota's house as I, showed it to buyers it was for sale two years ago uh-huh. um i think it's pretty original it's a nice house i thought it was very respectful of the environment yeah. um and it 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 didn't it wasn't haunted there was nothing like that but what i thought was right. interesting is that the home had a book in it that had the history of the family but everybody knew it was like this hanging thing about the property that everybody knew that that had happened. Uh, the buyers if, are with, weren't concerned about it too much. It just wasn't for them. Yeah. If, and if you go online, uh, you can find a history of it. It was, it was built by a man named Aaron green and he was the only um, sort of protege of Frank Lloyd Wright. So it has some prominence to it. And it's the second largest house that he built. 
Um, and they built it, yeah, not just with the Japanese, um, you know, sort of aspect in mind, like they said, uh, of respect for nature, but um, it, I, my understanding is it has some sort of Japanese features to it. Uh, and at that website, it, it lists that there have only been like two sort of renovations at all. And I forgot what the first one was. And the second one, it says, oh, be was because of a fire in 1970 because after John Lindley Frazier murdered the Oda family, he tried to light the kitchen on fire. He started, I think, five or seven little fires in the kitchen and the kitchen went up in flames, but it didn't impact the rest of the house. So Yeah, I remember the kitchen being newer. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right. Uh, wow, we just kind of zipped through that. What, what other do you... I did not read the book yet, of course, so mm-hmm. what else do you touch on? in that in the book that's well yeah so we i sort of go over um you know like i said hitchhiking and other crimes in the area but another uh, big aspect which i sort of touched on before was um sort of the hippies and the antagonism between um the locals and the hippies who in the end you know ended up being sort of the kids of the locals but um there was a commune in in ben loman by highlands park named the holiday commune uh, my dad lived there for a while. Another man named Jim Genera lived there for a while. He he was a high school friend of Herbert Mullen and, and would end up being he and his wife one of Herbert Mullen's victims. Um, he and his wife. Yeah, oh. yeah were, were killed killed by Mullen over mm. um, uh, what's the street down off of UCSC? I forgot the street. The house is still there though. It's a neat looking house. Um, but yeah, so. Uh, the holiday cabins, yeah, that was a big uh, sort of hippie commune, and, and locals absolutely detested it. They tried to Molotov cocktail uh, the bus. It was my dad's bus. Uh, it didn't go up because Coke, Coke bottles at that time were very thick glass. <laughs> so, um, uh, yeah, so I go over that uh, quite a bit uh, in the book, just those ant- that antagonism. And, and in the end, uh, Santa Cruz... Uh, board of Supervisors asked this company, I can't remember their name, to sort of uh, to do a report on what they called the the Utes, the undesirable transient element. You know, what's going on with Santa Cruz? Why do we have all these 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 Utes? And so they conducted this report, and they ended up they're the ones that sort of had discovered, you know, hey, all this youth and all these older folks. And they said, sure, Santa Cruz has a lot of surfers. And there is some hippie element, but they're they're just doing uh, marijuana and LSD. They said the harder drugs that everybody was so concerned that were coming into Santa Cruz at the time, they said were being sold and distributed by people in suits. And so, the, <laughs> yeah, so they said this undesirable, and they also said this undesirable transient element, it's you, it's your kids, you know, it's this youth movement. The people aren't, some people are coming in the area, but a lot of them are local as well. So that was that did not go over well, and and then the the company said, oh, and we can also um, we can further study this at a for fifteen or forty five thousand dollars or something like that if you mm-hmm. want. The board of supervisors was not happy with their findings. So shortly after that, the idea of becoming a Ute, um, U-T-E, undesirable transient element, became kind of trendy and popular. And there was a man <laughs> named Pat Licky who. Um, started this ute he made t-shirts you know saying ute undesirable transient element and tote bags and flags and proud to be a ute that kind of thing and um and that sort of took off and ultimately uh, uh pat ended up becoming 
he was um, elected to be on the board of supervisors. He became a supervisor, and and they in the newspaper they call him the hippie mayor, Pat Lickey. And, and I knew Pat, and he was I was a little kid, but he was certainly not like a, an out and out hippie uh, by any means. So that was sort of funny. Like they had put a spotlight on this issue. And then the issue sort of ended up encompassing them or enveloping them, and uh, just sort of an interesting. It is, backstory. yeah. I, that also might give a little rise to why homeless feel comfortable coming here. That that history mm-hmm. of that. Why did you write this book? So I wrote the book. This this story has just sort of been with me pretty much my whole life. Like we knew growing up, my brother and I that. Uh, our dad's friend, Jim, had been killed by Herbert Mullen. We just knew it, and we talked about it sort of openly in the house. It may sound morbid, but it was just a fact. My dad had a picture of himself and Jim and and their friend Mouse uh, hiking, and it was just there, you know, in in and around us, and we talked about it. And and, uh, you're from there, so you know, like, some people just talk. I mean, I can go to a bookstore. I was just in Two Birds Bookstore on 41st, um, dropping off some books, and there was a customer in there and said, oh, yeah, my uh, girlfriend's or wife's dad was uh, in law enforcement at that time. And everywhere you go, somebody has a story. You, I could w- walk down to Knob Hill and, and say, hey, John Lindley Frazier, Herbert Mullen, somebody will have a story locally. So I, you know, I just knew this. And so I, when I was always attracted to that darker side, I guess. So I started saving newspaper clippings and anytime every 10 years something would come up or somebody would go on parole one of the killers I, I would just clip it and save it and it was always in the back of my head like man this would make a great sort of tv show or movie or something and i had a co-worker we used to talk back and forth and about oh man somebody's got to do a tv a tv show about this and um and then in 2000 so that was just always there and in 2019, I went and saw Mickey Alufi speak, and he was one of the detectives, uh, primarily working on the Kemper case, but they were killing at the same time, so it, it went sort of back and forth. Um, but he was primarily working on the Kemper case, and um, he gave a talk about Kemper, about Edmund Kemper, and my wife and I went and saw it, and Mickey's super sharp, like, he just remembers the facts, and he was a great help on my book, but he... Um, we looked around when we got there and he's given the talk and everybody is like in their eighties, you know? And I thought, man, within 10, 20 years, we're not going to have this primary source material, these meeting these people and their stories and then actually live through this. It's just going to be gone as their memories go. And unfortunately people pass away. So it was, that was like a Saturday. And on Monday I was sitting in my office, just looking out the window as I have to do something. And like I said, I had already written that book before um, about Bruiser Brody. So I was like, I'm writing a book. And I remember one of my coworkers walking in and I was like, I'm writing a book. Like, what are you talking about? I said, I've been thinking about this for almost my whole life. So writing a book. I was like, yeah. So that night I immediately started um, calling people and, you know, and, and of course the first people I called my parents, they were there, you know, my dad knew Jim and, and um, so and then it's like a, I always describe it as sort of a spider web. You talk to one person, like, oh, you got to talk to so and so and so and so. Great, what's their phone number and and all that. So I, um, I it's just sort of spider webbed out, you know. And my mom put me in touch with our old family friend, you know, Bob Ludlow, and and Bob knows everybody in Santa Cruz. So then Bob spins me off to Sam Robustelli and 
Carol Cartwright and Austin Comstock, all these local people that worked on the cases and stuff. And so I would, I always felt like if, if the person was involved in a professional way with these crimes, then, you know, as an investigator or an attorney or something, I, I felt comfortable calling them on the phone and, and just say, Hey, I'm in, I'm working on this book. My name is Emerson. Um, but if it was like a victim's uh, family member yeah. or friend or something, yeah. I, I typically wrote a letter. I went old school. I thought it might be a little softer and, and give them a chance. They can call me if they want to. And, and a lot did. And that was very up and down. You know, a lot of, some people were just didn't respond and others were, um, you know, how dare you even bring this up? And that was tough. I've tried to be as respectful as I could because the book is really ultimately about the victims. Each chapter is is a victim, and I try to tell their story. And um, and some were just very happy to talk to me when I talked to Mary Guilfoyle was was uh, Mullen's second victim, and when I talked to the her sister in law, she was happy to talk to me and, and she even said thank you so much for doing this because we've seen documentaries about the killer and books about the killer but no one has ever asked us about mary and so she was amazed this lady was amazing and she sent me pictures of mary uh, which nobody had ever seen obviously and and told me some really neat stories about who mary was as a person and her life and a lot of these people were young they didn't have long lives obviously and and um and, and so it, it was just neat to, that's what I'm most proud of with the book. It's just getting these stories out there about who the people were. Cause I see so many books and projects that are like the killer is a rock star kind of, they kind of treat them that way. Yeah. It, it's just, it's frustrating and sick and makes me kind of always made me mad. And you can't get away from the killer, obviously, if you're doing a book, but like the, the victims are important. I mean, that, yeah. I don't know. That's just how I always Well, felt. I think true so. crime is really changing. I think the focus has really gone off of the <clears throat> excuse me. The um the the killers. I think that the victims are playing more of a part. I think it's been yeah. nice that the media has downplayed these guys and talked yeah. more about the victims and I think one of the headlines that always grabs me and drives me crazy is as as It'll always say like at least 250 people killed. Well, what are we going for more? I mean, there's yeah, still okay. a lot of work to be done and how to get people to understand the loss of life. Yeah. We're not even close. I, I agree with that. Yeah. A lot of times it, it comes out like a score, like a video yeah. game score or yeah. something. And, yeah. And that's, that's bothersome. You know, even at the beginning of this, I, I was talking about, Oh, Mullen killed 13 and Kimber killed six. Like, um, in some ways, it's sort of, it doesn't belittle, but it's hard, you know, it's, it's, it's not callous, but it, it, you just sometimes, I mean, it is what it is, I guess. I'm not exactly sure what I'm trying to say, but you just have to keep your mind on, on them at all time because they were people. And, and even, you know, Jim Janera um, has a daughter who's still in the area, and I, I wrote her a letter, and I just wanted to tell her, like, I felt like it would be horrible for her to walk into a bookstore and just see this book. So I just said, I don't really, she was a baby at the time. So I don't, I don't need anything unless you want to talk, but um, I just didn't want you to walk into a bookstore or hear about this somehow and be like, what the heck is this? Um, without some kind of heads up. I just felt like that was, that was really important. And uh, 
Another interesting aspect was that, you know, these killers had families who, in mm -hmm. a twisted way, were victims as well. They didn't ask for this attention or on their family or themselves. Notoriety. And, yeah. So, I, I reached out. You know, Mullen has a sister. She had, had moved out before they even moved. That family had moved to Felton, was married. Um, she never got back to me. And I and Kemper's sister is still around. Uh, his younger sister is still around. I wrote her a letter and I tried to call her, but she did, did not want to talk. And I thought that that's fine. You know, I tried to tell her, like, I, I really want to hear about your mom because all we know knew at the time about Kemper's mother was from Kemper. And of course was not a glowing picture. It was a really nasty sort of picture of the mom. And I thought, well, she's a person. Let, let's hear the other side. And, and I did eventually get the other, other side. You know, I talked to some of her coworkers. Uh, she worked at UCSC. I talked to a couple of her coworkers, and, uh, and and I did find recordings of Kemper's sister and two, his two sisters, and they both talked about her. So you get a good sense in the book of who Kemper's mother wa was, and and, and yeah, you because know, it's very skewed when you just hear it from Kemper, you know, clearly. So right. Well, every everybody has an opinion about their parents. <clears throat> mm -hmm. That a lot of people don't normally share. the The other part of this. Um, and do you touch upon it on the book at all? Is just kind of that shift in in time, like how we go from the sixties to the seventies, and because yep. that's yep. really important as well. I mean, it's not. I'm not downplaying the the victims' experience and that mm -hmm. you know, but I'm but I'm also it, it, it's a, like a it's a marker. It's a, a clear cut marker of where things just radically changed. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And yeah, I do touch on that a lot. There's a Santa Cruz, I mean, there's a chapter just about Santa Cruz and also a chapter, you know, with the history of, and, you know, going over who Peter Chang is and who, that's another thing is nobody ever asked about who's Peter Chang, who's Harold Cartwright, you know, who are these people that were, to me, sort of legends in Santa Cruz, like the, those are our, our sort of little local celebrities from that time period. And uh, so that was and Jim Jackson who defended. He was the public defender who defended all three of the killers. Whoa! And, and he's just such an amazing person, such an original thinker, and it was just a lot. Ended up being a lot of fun talking to him um, and just hearing his opinions about things. But um, and they're they're so respectful about each other, but yet they have these completely different views. You know, Chris Cottle, who was uh, an assistant to the district attorney, and he became district attorney later. Um, he had these points of view on Mullen and Kemper and Frazier. And then you talk to Jim Jackson, the public defender, or Harold Cartwright, who's an, an investigator for the public defender. And, and they're respectful of each other, but their opinions are completely different. Like, no, he was not uh, insane by the monotonous standard, which is how we judge whether you are legally insane or not. And, and then you talk to the defense and I, like, oh, he was sure he was sort of organized, but he was clearly insane and in, in by legal definition so um that so was really with pro cool. with uh peter chang a prosecutor yeah yeah so he was the prosecutor and they were all three tried here yeah well the fraser um tri uh, trial was moved over to redwood city so that was held over there but but it was like a local jury and and, and it was all our folks the public defender and the district jury. they all went over there and funny enough, they all stayed in the same hotel, which you'd never see nowadays. They all stayed in the same hotel and were hosting parties with each other. Oh and, um, and my understanding is even after the trial, you know, uh, the district attorney threw a party and the jurors were at the, at the party. So, and the defense, 
uh, you know, so it's just like it's just different times. You know, it's sort of like the hitchhiking thing. You, it's hard to get your head around um, when you're if if you're living through this era, just how different it was in a lot of ways and informal things were, um, which was not to the betterment of of a lot of people, you know, women and minorities and stuff. But uh, that's just the way it was at the time. So. Uh, Peter Chang, he passed away, right? He's not around anymore. Yeah, so a lot of the stories that that I, whenever I'd ask about Peter Chang, the people that knew him, they'd tell me how great he was and how smart he was. And he was an amazing uh, trial lawyer, by my understanding. He was from La Selva Beach. He had worked in the Monterey, um, a district attorney's office down there. And he tried a lot of cases uh, of murder from Soledad, of prisoners killing other prisoners. So he had a lot of trial uh, experience. Um, but eventually every person I talked to eventually brought up how much he drank. So he was, and, and he talked about it a lot himself because later, uh, he ran to be a judge. I, I can't remember what circuit, but it was uh, here locally. And he, um, brought up a lot about his alcoholism and, and how what, he had lost his family over it. He had just lost so much, lost his law practice over it and, and was really trying to rebuild, and he, he that bid was not successful. He did not he did not become a judge, and I think he ultimately died of alcohol related diseases. I can't remember what. I what think year he did. I I seem to recall that. Um, I still read the paper bit version of the Sentinel. <laughs> when I was a teenager, I read it purely for entertainment because the the grammar was so bad. It used to crack me oh, up. Funny. That's it's just funny. poorly written. But they were the stars for sure. These guys were still, um, yeah, when I was a teenager, yeah. People also forget about the Register Pajaronian, which is still around as a weekly. Is it? Okay. But it was a daily newspaper. It was very well known. There was a woman named Marge Von B, who was a reporter for them. And everybody I talked to that worked on the case, you know, legal terms or law for they just loved Marge. I guess she had this gravelly voice and it was a smoker <laughs> and saying, what do you got for me? And is this on the record or off the record? And, oh, my gosh. And uh, she actually got to know Kemper a little bit while he'd be waiting in the hallway or waiting to go into court, you know, all shackled. She would talk with him and ultimately he granted her an interview. So it was in some tr like true crime magazine that was later published and he, she interviewed him, but she was very well known. Uh, I think her, I can't remember what she had won, but she had won awards for her journalism and somehow she settled in, in, I guess in Watsonville and with that newspaper it's sort of interesting. Yeah, the newspapers used to be something. I, I yeah, it used to be very different, right? Yeah, I still like it, but it's not the same. Yeah, yeah. And the title of the book, it came from um, Mullen had killed four boys that were camping. They had built sort of a makeshift tent. Uh, it's like almost like it looked like a yurt sort of, but it had like different chambers. I mean, it was huge out in Henry Cal Forest mm -hmm. in a remote part that, nobody was really supposed to be in and and mullen of course he said he was saving the earth but you know curiously enough he had been sort of building a tent and the rangers found him a few years earlier and kicked him out and so he sees these four boys out there with a tent and by his account they psychically told him like yes we need to be sacrifices and we're going to save the world and he goes into the tent and shoots all four of them and kills them well the next day or later that day um Peter Chang is giving a press conference about it, and, and a San Francisco examiner reporter asks him and says, so, you know, Santa Cruz, this must be the murder capital of the world, right? And Peter Chang said, yeah, we 
we are the murder capital. And uh, and that just took off, and that was in all the newspapers and every. Uh, and I found in uh, uh, and it stuck, of course. And I found in um, the newspapers at the time, the board of supervisors just hated it, especially Pat Lickie, that they were talking about in their meetings. Who named us this? This isn't true. And I think they were worried about sort of your aspect. The real estate would go down, and <laughs> tourism would go down once we got this reputation. But and. It, it stuck, and even in uh, 1987, when they made the Lost Boys movie, which they shot here in Santa Cruz, they renamed it Santa Carla, um, as in the beginning of the movie, when the protagonist and his mom and his brother are driving into town, and you see this big billboard, and it says, Welcome to Santa Carla, and then they pass by, the camera lingers, and it pan, or, um, yeah, pans over to the back of the sign, and in big red and black letters, it says, Murder Capital of the World, somebody had graffitied on on it and it's like they filmed it here and they took that out of like yeah that is us and i always tell people like you know that santa carla they only had a, a handful a little coven of teenage vampires you know we had this six foot nine like cannibal <laughs> necrophile cannibal and we had this guy murdering people for the earthquake like we give me a handful of teenage vampires any day we had a much worse than what they put in the movies so i don't know a lot of the extras were my friends they're were, they were pretty funny. nutty yeah, too right. they didn't kill anybody but <laughs> right. definitely we were huge terrors in town <laughs> uh, that's funny yeah that that i tried to watch it i couldn't it was just it's just so dumb oh, that's funny i think we did watch a part of it i was like oh there's so and so you know but yeah i grew up with it so i just loved it i, I always loved that yeah that's funny yeah Dif- different time i get really defensive about santa cruz and when people say things about it it's just like if you even just took a bit of history or even understood the background of some of the stuff that has gone on here you would understand that you're wrong (laughs) i mean basically you're wrong um i don't have a lot of complaints about santa cruz although i should um for whatever comes up politically or um culturally but um, you know, this kind of stuff I think is important because it really does, it does stick in the back of people's minds. It is something, um, there's always kind of that scary element. I don't know about the rest of people on my street, but I, my door is always locked. Uh-huh. It's just always locked at home or not or whatever. Everything is always completely locked. I think that's just kind of the way I grew up. I gave up worrying about what's in my car. Either I take it out or I give it away because they're going to get into the car. Right, right, right. Other than that, I feel safe, but I also did happen upon some crime statistics lately, which is really awful. So I'm probably not going to go back and look at that. Yeah. And, and, you know, know, and this essentially killed hitchhiking. Yeah. You know, everyone stopped hitchhiking after after this. Which not, Um, in a way, I mean, if you think about it for all the women who were probably assaulted, didn't didn't feel like the cops or anybody were going to do anything about it. That might have had a, I'm just going to say a slight good piece to that i think there was a lot of because yeah that's that's an interesting point like yeah how can something really really negative sort of help society change and that's a really good point and the other thing is is the women's lib movement was happening around that time and so women were like i want my own darn driver's license like i can drive a car like so there were were some positive things you know and that helps shove it along maybe in some sick way i don't know like but you know it's just the word it's just such a time of change you know and people you know they always point to the late 60s but the early 70s we were still changing and we were sort of i don't know it was just a a rough time 
it's funny now because now we just you know type in uber and get picked up by a stranger so get, get in a stranger's <laughs> but, car for sure yeah so it's sort of it's sort of funny i mean there's controls around it obviously but um some things change and some things don't so I was walking along with my mom. I think I was like eight years old. So that would have made me, what was that, like 76-ish or so. Um, And me and my mom were walking down the street and she was holding my hand and some guy pulled up on Mission Street and just said, so like, hey, where's the party? Like we were together. (laughs) And, you know, that sticks out in my mind. And then we had other men try to get us in their cars over the years as we were young kids. And um, I think that, that whole idea of, and I'm glad that's gone away. And I think actually this probably did help because there was more stranger danger stuff starting to come along. And, and, and when people say, Oh, the strangers were, you know, out there, well, they're out there. Of course, some of them were in my own family. They were bad people too, but uh, this, this is, this is such an era where we actually started looking at, and how many, how many people were really doing bad stuff? How many people thought they were going to get caught? And they were right, doing right, something yeah. right. Oh, they're going to come get yeah. me next and nothing happened. I mean, you got to think about that, which is scary to think about. But. Yeah. And your business, uh, when you're showing houses to people from outside the area, did they ever bring up this kind of stuff? No, um, I didn't know it. We were going to see the Ota house and I just, I'm not aware of where all the houses are. So my <laughs> buyer wanted to see it and I have a feeling he wanted to see it because of that, but he never yeah, really yeah. admitted it. Um. I think people have a really, yeah, people have an idea about Santa Cruz that I, I will spend time. I spend time on my YouTube channel trying to just, you know, just uh, spell some of it. And I do when I'm with people of, you know, Santa Cruz has done a lot for the world as well. I mean, it's not like we've, we've produced right, these right. serial killers. I mean, there's a lot of people in Santa Cruz that have done, gone on to do a lot of good in the whole world and, and, um, you know, try to bring that up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I I don't actually believe in haunted houses. So mm-hmm. I but there's been vibes uh during the foreclosure era when people were literally forced out of their homes. Well, I mean they probably had no business buying that home anyway, but there would usually be a eerie linger. Uh, but other than that, I haven't really come across I I didn't think when we were in the Otis house there was anything eerie there, but Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's it's been purged or maybe that stuff doesn't exist at all. Yeah. It's just, um, I think people bring a lot of baggage with them in a lot of cases. And, and so that's, just, I mean, I've seen and heard stories that are unexplainable, but, um, I think people bring a lot of, you know, what's inside them to things. You are absolutely sort of right. I moved out of my last house and I heard voices for a long time. My husband heard them at one point too. And when we moved out and we sold it, um, I just told him, I think we were actually just, being told by something to move because we had lived there too long and that was no longer the space for us because the new owner has not said a word. He's fine. Loves the house. Yeah. And and it was just a matter of, yeah, exactly what you say. It was our time to move and we weren't listening to whatever, you know, thing we were supposed to Cosmo. We were supposed to listen. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate you having you on. And, um, are you going to, how long has your book been out? I just found it. So, So yeah, it came out. It just came out in July. Where are we at October? Oh, okay. July. Yeah, so it's it's pretty new. I did a limited edition of a thousand. Each one is hand numbered and hand signed. I got pallets of them out in the garage behind me. <laughs> yeah, so the three thousand and two pounds of books were delivered. Um, 
and you can get it at um, Two Birds Bookstore on 41st Avenue, and you can get it at Bookshop Santa Cruz um, and Postal Annex in Scotts Valley, and um, and then MurderCapitalOfTheWorld.com, C-A-P-I-T-A-L, and um, then you, that's ordering directly from me, okay. and yep, so that's how you can get it. Are you going to be doing any signings or? Well, I did. I did a talk for the Rotary Club. I did. Um, I've done a couple of podcasts and stuff. But like Bookshop Santa Cruz and Two Birds, I talked to them, and both of them were like, "We're not ready with COVID. We're not ready to have uh, live book events yet." So I'm excited to do that. That was one of my strange, weird goals for myself. Is I would love to do a talk at Bookshop Santa Cruz because I've seen so many wonderful authors speak there myself. Um, so that. I would love to do that. Uh, I spoke, like I said, at a Rotary Club, and I'm going to do another Rotary Club in San Jose uh, later this month. Okay. Um, not there's not just not a lot of live stuff. I've thought about doing sort of a Facebook stream or something, but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, if you if you go to the website, you can see where to order the book, and there's a Facebook group that I started, and it's okay. it's got like almost 500 members, so that's kind of yeah. Um, yeah, and you'll get a copy of the podcast too. So if you want to throw that around, you oh, can. cool! Yeah, I'll throw it up there on all the social media. Okay, um, I'm going to say goodbye and thank you, but don't turn off your your screen yet. And uh, thank you so much for humoring me. This is a bonus, but it's also, um, I mean, the whole idea of me doing content is for people to get to know me a little bit. I do like true crime, but I'm actually more interested in Santa Cruz. So I, I think we touched on a lot of Santa Cruz. So for that, I, I think, think you would you. like the book then. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yours might be the first real true crime Santa Cruz book that I've read. I've kind of danced around them. I think it's a little too close to home. I've read other ones, but I'm like, I don't know. I think I'm a little nervous. Well, I'll tell you this. I sort of haunted myself everywhere I go in Santa Cruz now. I'm like, oh, that's where Kemper did this. Oh, that's where he met his friend after he goes everywhere I go now. there's, I've sort of like It I kind said, of put that lens myself. over everything. Yeah. So that's been sort of tough. My family's been great. My wife and two kids, I just dragged them out to these weird locations to take pictures and, and stuff. And they're like, okay, fine. Let's go. It's just wild. And I, um, I appreciate you not mentioning... Um, addresses and and just keeping yeah. it to local areas no details yeah don't want to drag people through the, because i believe kemper's place was up for sale a couple years ago as well and mm. that was getting activity just for that yeah of course awesome well thank you thanks